where Brother John Baker comes and delivers our message. I'll read the scripture reading this morning. It will come from Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 27 and 28. If you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles, it's on page 725. Again, Ezekiel 37, verses 27 and 28. And our lesson this morning will be about unity. Starting in verse 27, my dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Good morning. I know there are a lot of visitors among us this morning. We're especially glad that you are here. Maybe you came to the Rice Festival yesterday and were invited by somebody. We're really glad that you've come our way. I know there are a number of here, a number here who were not here six years ago. And you're saying, this is wonderful, but, but what is this all about? This is a remarkable day in the history of this congregation. These kinds of things don't happen very often brethren, when two groups of people who have been divided, when they do the hard work of reconciling with one another. And I want to tell you personally, as I've prayed with our elders and listened to our elders over the last several years, this has been a hard work. But I want to spend time this morning doing this. I want to remind all of us of the hard work that God has done throughout history. Exodus 30, or Ezekiel 37 is where our lesson is going to come from. And if you would, just take your marker in your, in your Bible there and just sort of put a piece of paper there because we're going to come to Exodus, Ezekiel 37. I keep saying Exodus in just a few moments. Ezekiel chapter 37. I want to give you some background on what, it, what Ezekiel's saying in Ezekiel 37 because it'll help us to understand. Go all the way back in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. When we think about God's work with his people Israel, it's amazing to consider that he always wanted them to be united as a people. In Exodus chapter two, beginning in verse 23, the uh, Israelites were in captivity. The scripture says in Exodus 2:23, it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of their bondage and they cried out. And because of their cry, it came up before God because of the bondage. And so God heard their groaning, Exodus 2.24. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. One translation says, and God knew. God saw the suffering of his people. And so through the hand of Moses, he sent Moses to Pharaoh and said, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go. Exodus chapter five and verse one. God sent 10 plagues upon the Israelites, upon the uh, Egyptians and delivered the Israelites after those 10 plagues were concluded. And the Israelites did not have to fight their way out of Egypt. They actually in the middle of the night were given riches and treasures and they went to the Red Sea and God opened the Red Sea and the Israelites walked through on dry land. God closed the Red Sea upon the enemies of Israel. And the Israelites were alone in the wilderness 
without the Egyptians behind them anymore. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. God brings the Israelites very quickly to Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 19, and everything has been happening so quickly. God's been speaking through Moses and the Israelites know that it's a good thing that they've been delivered, but what's God gonna do now? What's his purpose? What's his goal? God stops them at Mount Sinai and he keeps them there for almost a year. And the very first thing God says to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 19, he calls Moses up on the mountain and he says, Exodus 19 verse four, you shall say this to the children of Israel, Exodus 19 four, Israelites, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, verse six. These are the words, Moses, which you shall speak to the children of Israel. God tells the Israelites that he has delivered them, he has brought them to Mount Sinai, and he wants them to be a people separated unto him. Brothers and sisters and friends, when God redeems people, when he delivers us, he wants us to be a holy, a separate people united before him. That's what he wanted, that's what his heart was all about. Turn over if you would to Deuteronomy chapter four. The Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of sin. And in Deuteronomy chapter four, before they entered into the land, Moses preached three sermons to them. And in one of those sermons, Moses says this, Deuteronomy chapter four and verse six to the Israelites. Deuteronomy chapter four and verse six. Therefore, be careful to observe God's commandments for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there, Deuteronomy 4, 7, that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us for whatever reason we may call upon him? And what nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? God brought those Israelites out of Egypt and he sustained them in the wilderness and he said, I'm gonna give you my laws and my statutes when you come into the land and people are going to look at you and they're gonna see my wisdom in you. What great nation is there like this one, like the Israelites with all the wisdom that they possess and all the good judgments that they have? Where did they get this wisdom? Oh, it came from God. There's no other explanation than that. And so God redeemed his people, he sustained his people, and he gave his people his commandments. And he said, I'm gonna make you a light to the nations. And so in the history of God's people, the Israelites, they came in and they possessed the land in the book of Joshua. And as one united nation, they were the first and only true theocracy that has ever existed. That is, God literally was their ruler. And so for four centuries, the Israelites lived in the land through the period of the judges and through three kings, Saul and David and Solomon. But after four centuries and even during that time, there were always people that were willing to have rivalries. There were always people who were willing to try to cause division because that's what people do. 
listen to what I'm saying this morning. It is easy to cause division. It's really easy. That's the easy part. You can always find a reason to find fault. You can always find a reason to cause a problem. It's hard to turn to God and to be united. It's hard to work on those things. And so, turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 12. After four centuries in the land, in 1 Kings chapter 12, the Bible says that two kings, two men who wanted to be king, one named Rehoboam, one named Jeroboam, they disagreed with one another. And partly because of the sin of Solomon, that was the remote cause, and partly because of Rehoboam's harsh answer to the Israelites, that was the immediate cause, the nation was torn in two. And so, in 1 Kings chapter 12, again, beginning in verse 16, all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them. The people answered the king and said, what share have we in David? In other words, God brought us out of, Israel, or out of Egypt and he brought us through the wilderness and he put us in the land, but we really don't have any share with these people. What share have we in David? We have no inheritance to the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, now see to your own house, O David. And so Israel departed to their tents. And so for the next 400 years, there were two nations, not one. And there was always an uneasy alliance, an uneasy relationship between the Israelites and the people of Judah. As a matter of fact, sometimes they warred with each other. Sometimes they worked together but it was an uneasy relationship for 400 years. If you know your Old Testament history, what happened to those two nations? Well, in 722 BC, 2 Kings chapter 17 tells us that the Northern Kingdom, those 10 tribes to the North, they were taken into captivity because of their wickedness. And then 150 or so years later, the Southern Kingdom of Judah was also taken into captivity because of its wickedness. Second Kings tells us. And so, after eight centuries of God's people, four centuries of them being somewhat united, four centuries of them being somewhat divided, after eight centuries, Ezekiel comes on the scene and Ezekiel begins to prophesy. These people are far from their homes, they are in captivity, they're in a terrible place. What sermon is God gonna give to Ezekiel to preach? What's he gonna tell Ezekiel to tell these people? Now open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 37. And I want you to notice the prophecy. Ezekiel chapter 37, beginning in verse 15. After eight centuries, four centuries of unity, four centuries of division, Ezekiel's gonna preach a sermon. And here's the sermon. God says, Ezekiel, first of all, I want you to give me an illustration. Give the people something to see. Sometimes people can't really get the point unless they see something concrete. And so God tells Ezekiel to preach to these people, but first do a object lesson. Ezekiel 37 verse 15, here's the prophecy. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, as for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and ride on it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and ride on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim and all the house of Israel, his companions. And then, verse 17, join them one to another for yourself into one stick, and they will become one in your hand. So, if you're paying attention, 
Ezekiel is supposed to very deliberately in front of the people take two sticks and nobody's quite sure what these sticks look like. Are they just tree branches or are they, are they a, a king's scepter or a rod? Nobody's quite sure exactly what these sticks look like, but they were very obvious. And Ezekiel did this in a very public way. And so on one stick he writes down, for Judah. And on the other stick he writes down the words, for Israel. And then Ezekiel takes these two sticks and in some way he joins them together. Maybe he lashed them together with the rope. Maybe they were broken pieces of the same stick and he reunited them and bound them up. But whatever the case was, Ezekiel was to take these sticks and he was to hold them up in the presence of all the people. And the reason why God told him to do this was so that the Israelites would ask a question. What does this mean, Ezekiel? You have given us this sign. You have done this, this, given us this prophecy, this word. Explain this to us. What does the reunification of these two sticks mean? And so, here's what you're supposed to say. Look at verse 18. When the children of your people speak to you saying, will you not show us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in my hand. This is God speaking now. What Ezekiel is doing is what God says he's gonna do. I'm gonna take my people, both the Israelites and the people of Judah, these two nations that have been divided for 400 years, and I'm gonna join them together in my hand. You know, the people were in captivity and they were hurting and they were longing to go home and they were wondering what's gonna happen next. And I would suspect that probably national unity was not really on their agenda. I would imagine that reunifying the people that were divided for four centuries was really not something that was one of their priorities. But God said, that's what I'm gonna do. When I bring back the people from captivity, when I do this miraculous work, I'm going to bind them as one stick in my hand. That's the prophecy. This was a work, pay attention, that God was going to do. This was his idea. This was his purpose. And then look at the promises that God begins to make. As you read this prophecy, God starts to make amazing promises to the Israelites. He says to a people in captivity, beginning in verse 20, the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes, and then you shall say to them, verse 21, thus says the Lord God, surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, I will gather them from every side, and I will bring them into their own land. Promise number one, I'm gonna bring back my people from captivity. They have sinned against me, they have been wicked, they have walked in ways that I was not pleased with, but I am gonna be compassionate and merciful upon my people. I'm going to bring them back from the lands to which they have gone. We serve an amazing and a merciful God, brothers and sisters. We serve a God who loves and cares for all of his people. We do. And God says, I'm going to bring them back. He continues, promises are not done yet. Look at verse 22. I will make them one nation in the land, verse 22, on the mountains of Israel 
and one king shall be over them all. There's two promises. Number one, when they come back, we're not gonna have this division anymore. We're not gonna have this one nation over here and one nation over here and this uneasy relationship between the two. By the way, they fostered that and fomented that, those two nations did. They did a lot of things on either side to make sure that there was the division that remained. God said, we're not gonna have that anymore. In my work, he said, I'm gonna bring them back and I'm gonna make them one people. That's his promise. And God says, I'm gonna put one king over them. If you're paying attention, if you're watching, there was never a king who was adequate, completely adequate to unify God's people until the king came, until Jesus Christ came. He is the one king that Ezekiel is talking about. He is the one who's gonna rule over all of God's people. He is the one who is going to have one nation. You see, some of what Ezekiel is saying has to do with the reunification of the nation of Israel. And a lot of this passage has to do with the New Testament church and what Jesus the king is going to do. God says, I'm gonna give you a king and he's going to rule over you. Next, look at the promises. Continuing in verse 22. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again, verse 22. They shall not defile themselves anymore, verse 23, with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. I will, God says, deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned. I will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people and I will be their God. Next promise. God says, I'm going to heal them and I'm going to cleanse them and I'm going to deliver them from all of the wickedness that they've been doing, I'm going to cleanse them. The emphasis of this passage is on the promises of God. What is God up to? What is God doing? Where is his heart? What does he want? You know, a lot of times we don't stop and think enough about what God really wants. God says, I want this, these two nations to be made one. I want my people to be united under one king and I'm gonna heal them and I'm gonna cleanse them. This is what God's promising the Israelites that he's going to do. Notice in verse 24, I'm gonna give them a shepherd, next promise. David my servant, talking about Jesus prophetically. David my servant shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They're gonna be one flock, they're gonna have one shepherd, they're gonna follow him, that's it. And when you look at what the New Testament church is supposed to be all about, we follow the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter five, verses one through four. We listen to him. They're going to be my people. As you continue in verse 25, then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt. They shall dwell there, they, their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. There is a dual prophecy happening here. Some of what Ezekiel is talking about is the Israelites returning to their land after captivity. And the ultimate fulfillment of what Ezekiel is saying happens when Jesus comes and establishes the kingdom of God in the days of the Roman kings. Verse 26, what's God doing? Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them, I will multiply them, I will set my sanctuary, my dwelling place in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle shall also be with them. Indeed, I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
the nations also, verse 28, will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Promise. I'm going to bring them into the land and I'm going to set my dwelling place in their midst. When you read the New Testament, what does God say about the church? He says the church is the temple of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I dwell among my people. And verse 28 is very significant. When the people of the nations around the world see my people dwelling together in covenant with me, following the shepherd, following the king, when the nations around see that, then they will know as well that this is my people. They belong to me. Those are the promises that God made to Israel through the mouth of Ezekiel. What are we supposed to take away from all that? An Old Testament prophecy that is something that is, is kind of obscure to us in some ways. What are we supposed to take away from all this? Brothers and sisters and friends, here's what we're supposed to take away. The God that we serve has always, always longed for, worked for, and encouraged his people to love each other and to demonstrate the bonds of brotherhood He has always wanted that. He wanted that with the Israelites in the Old Testament. He wants that with the church in the New Testament. That has always been where his heart is. Furthermore, the God of heaven has done the difficult work of reconciliation. You know how he did that? He accomplished that through the cross of Jesus Christ. The most painful, the most difficult work that was ever done was accomplished by Jesus when he took the sins of humanity upon himself and he redeemed us to God and he reconciled us to each other. The work of the cross is the ultimate fulfillment of God's desire for oneness and togetherness and unity among his people. Furthermore, we are near to the heart of God when we do the hard work of seeking reconciliation with those who are estranged. We're near to the heart of God when that's what we're all about. Open your Bibles to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, it's hard work. When we talk about unity, oh, it's fun to talk about and it's nice to think about, but whoa, it's hard work. I'm telling you, it's hard work. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 1. He says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And he's telling his brethren, I want you to work for the same things that God's been working for all through history. I want you to think about the unity that has been created by the cross. Listen to verse 2. You want to think about hard work? What does it take to have oneness and togetherness. What's the cost? What must happen in my attitude and yours? Look at verse 2. All lowliness and gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. We're going to have to be humble. We're going to have to put our desires and personal agendas aside, and we're going to have to let God's work and God's heart be what drives us and motivates us. Not only that, it says in verse 3, we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I want you to notice in verse 3, it sounds nice, but I want you to notice very carefully. 
The Spirit is the one who has already created the unity. He's already done the work. Jesus Christ died on the cross and the Spirit has been revealing through the, the apostles, through the New Testament, He's been revealing that this is what God's always wanted for people to be united, Jews and Gentiles, people from all walks of life, all backgrounds, they can be united in Christ. The Spirit has already created the unity. Your job and my job and everybody else's job is to keep the unity that the Spirit created in the bond of peace. We're unity keepers because God's done the work. And then look, verses four through six, there's a doctrinal component to this. One body, one spirit. You are called in one hope of your calling. Verse five, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. The seven ones they're called and they have to do with the doctrinal component of unity. It's not just unity for unity's sake, but it's unity based on a common love for God, a common desire to please him a common faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. We are near to the heart of God when this is what we're all about as God's people. It takes humility, it takes lowliness of mind, it takes gentleness, and it takes faithfulness to the doctrines of God's word. And as God's people here at Katy Church of Christ, we are going to be constantly pleading with all of our brethren everywhere. This is what we want to be all about because this is what God's all about. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to one another. And by this shall all the nations know that we are his disciples because of our love for one another. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Let's let God's word and God's heart become our, our words and our hearts. And we're gonna find that while there's hard work to do, God is glorified and people are brought to Christ. That's ultimately what we want. Thank you for your attention this morning. Open your song books to the song that David announced a few moments ago. There's some of us this morning that may need to be reconciled to God. You know in your heart, you know in your life that things are not right between you and him. You know that you have sowed the seeds of division in your life, that you've sinned against him and you want those sins to be cleansed, those sins to be forgiven. You can have that. God longs for you to come to him. That's what he's always wanted. He's always wanted people to come and to be united to him and to be united to their brethren. That's always what God wants. And that's our plea too. Come and be reconciled to God. Through the work that Jesus did on the cross, you can be forgiven of your sins. Repent of those sins. Confess that Jesus Christ is the one, the one who can reconcile you to God. And then be baptized. When somebody is baptized in water, they participate in what the Bible calls the new birth. We are born again and we are brought into a relationship with God and we're brought into a relationship with the people of God. When you're born into this world, you're brought into a relationship with your family. When you're born spiritually, you're brought into a relationship with those who belong to God as well. If you're ready to make that commitment this morning, it's a wonderful commitment to make. If we can help you in any way, please come forward while together we stand and while we sing.